Well, thank you, worship team, for helping us to lift high the name of Jesus Christ, the name above every name, the name that we will be praising and worshiping for all of eternity. And we have the privilege to do that now before we even join that heavenly choir as we are been set apart, been redeemed by the Savior himself. And we know the King, and so we praise him now. And indeed, it is all praise to him for his uh, salvation of us. As we come to God's word this morning, bow with me in a word of prayer. O Father on high, we truly bow before you and give you the praise that you deserve. We recognize that we bring nothing before you, that we have no righteousness of our own in which to claim. And so we are in your presence, and we are before your word as recipients of your grace, debtors to grace. And Father, we will increase our debt to grace even in this next hour as we have your spirit teach us from your word. Please give us open hearts, give us submissive wills that we might reflect the character of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, one of the games that my children like to play, and I'm sure all children everywhere like to play, is hide and seek. It's an easy game to pick up. You can play it at any time, anywhere, and you say yes, and the kids start scattering as uh, you start counting to uh, go find them. But the classic way that that game is played is that av after the person is finished counting, they cry out so that all can hear in their hiding places, ready or not, here I come. Of course, there's often a cry of, wait, 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 wait. Can you, can you, can you uh, count a little bit longer, i.e., I'm not ready. But uh, the, the idea is, I'm coming whether you are ready or not. And in our passage this morning, there's a sense in which Jesus cries out this similar phrase, ready or not, here I come. Although he is not declaring when he will come, he is declaring the fact that he will come. And this second coming of Christ is what is captivating Jesus' teaching here in Luke chapter 12. You know, the second coming of Christ used to be a more popular topic among uh, evangelicals and among Christians. You used to hear about it a bit more, songs sung about it, and uh, discussions and Bible studies and conferences on it. It's, it's not discussed much of late, and yet it is just as key and foundational today as it's ever been, that Jesus Christ is returning to this earth. At the time that Jesus spoke his words that we'll see in Luke chapter 12, he was still in his first advent. He was still in his first coming to the earth. He was born about 5 BC, and as he speaks these words in Luke 12, it's about late 32 AD, and he is within the last six months before his crucifixion. During these final days, he's going to continue to present himself to the nation of Israel, but he's also preparing his disciples for his departure. He knows his time is short upon this earth, and he will have to leave. But one of the ways he needs to prepare his disciples is to be prepared for him to come back again. He knows he's going to depart, but he knows that's not the end of the story. story. He will be coming again. And so... There are many things that Jesus taught his disciples that they did not understand. Many things that he taught them before his crucifixion that they did not understand until after his crucifixion, until they didn't understand until after the resurrection and even after the Spirit came at Pentecost. And I believe, in one sense, that's the teaching of the second coming. Jesus taught on the second coming, and yet for it to click into their minds that Jesus was going to leave, ascend to heaven, and then have to come back again, I don't think really clicked until later. But Jesus' words here are important, important for us to see, important for the disciples to see, and would factor prominently in the apostles' teaching later on. In the books that the apostles would write that we see later on in the New Testament, what Jesus teaches here has echoes later on, and it would pass on to the church. So if you're not already there, I invite you to turn your personal copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, 
If you don't have your own Bible, you can turn in the Pew Bible to page 1036, and you'll find our passage of Luke chapter 12. We'll be looking at verses 35 through 48 this morning, and so follow along as I read. These are the words of Christ for us. May we pay attention to what he has for us. Verse, picking up in verse 35. Jesus says, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time. Blessed is the servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day that he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much has much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Friends, this morning as we examine this passage, we will see that it calls us to live differently in light of the coming of Jesus Christ, the imminent return of Christ. And it helps us to do that by calling us to do two primary things. And if we do these two things, then we have the promise that Christ will reward us when he appears, when he comes back. He will reward his people. So let's look at these two things. First, this passage calls us to is to stay awake. It's to stay awake. We see this in verses 35 through 40. This theme of being awake is repeated throughout this paragraph in verses 35 through 40. And it's often, it's contrasted with those who fall asleep or are unprepared. They cease their watch. And so Jesus wants his disciples to be vigilant, to be watchful. This paragraph is arranged in what is called a chiasm. And we've talked about this several weeks ago. But it's this idea that the, the, the topics of this paragraph are arranged in accordance with one side of the Greek letter key, which is our letter X. And so you can see if you put an X up there, it kind of goes down from the top to the bottom of the side of an X. But as you can see with the color coordination, there's phrases throughout the paragraph that align with one another. And so as we... Uh, it all comes down to centralize on that red phrase in the middle. And so what we're going to look at, we're going to look at this passage, uh, this paragraph in this chiasm. And so we'll look at the blue first and the yellow and then the green and then we'll narrow in on the red. And so as we look at these verses, and these 35 through 40, we're going to see that Jesus calls us to stay awake. And he's going to call us to stay awake, that we can stay awake by, by using four means. And let's look at the the first of these, represented by those blue phrases. The first, we stay awake by remaining ready each day. We stay awake by remaining ready each day. We see this in verse 35 and 40. He begins saying, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. Two illustrations, one with clothing, the other with a lamp. Verse 35 begins with a clothing illustration. Stay dressed for action. Or as the Greek literally says, gird up your loins. This is taken from the 
understanding of garments in the ancient Near East that were long. And when they were uh, sitting about, not doing anything, they could allow those garments to be long. But when there was work that needed to be done, or they needed to run and move quickly, they would pull up that long garment, tuck it under the belt, and enable them to move about freely. And so, the idea of girding up their loins would be to say, be dressed for action, which is why it's translated that way. Be ready to act. Be ready to move. And so Jesus' point is that we are to stay dressed for action. We are to be ready at a moment's notice. Be prepared to move. Be prepared for service. This phrase is echoed or is used in Exodus chapter 12, verse 11, which is the passage on the Passover. Israel, as they prepared to leave Egypt, remember they were to have their bags packed, they were to make their bread without leaven, and they were to be able to go at a moment's notice. And so it says that they are to gird up their loins and sit and eat their meal prepared to go. In the same way, Jesus says, you are to be like Israel, ready to leave at a moment's notice. And so the point being that we are to be ready at a, for Christ's return at any moment. He continues that with the illustration in the second part of verse 35 with lamps. Keep your lamps burning. This illustration is similar to the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew chapter 25 that Jesus told where he says that there are ten virgins, five that were prepared and brought extra oil for their lamps and five that were not. They were going late into the night. They were waiting for the bridegroom to return. And the ones who were prepared were able to stay there and keep their lamps burning. But the ones who were not prepared had to go into the market to be able to get extra oil, and they missed the coming of the bridegroom. And so similarly, Jesus here is saying that we need to be prepared. We need to be ready for Christ. We need to be awake and be in readiness for Christ's return. It's like we're waiting up for a family member. You know, parents of teenagers, right? They go out to hang out with some friends, and you're waiting for them to come back. You've got the light on, and you're not going to be turning out that light and going to bed until they show up. You're in an active preparedness. You're in active waiting for them to return. And if they come back, come back past the curfew, some heads are going to roll. No. Um, or you can think of maybe family members coming from uh, uh, out of town. And they're, they're, they're on their way. They're trying to make it there. And it's getting late into the night. And you're staying up waiting for them. As long as you know that they're coming you're going to stay up. You're going to keep the lamp burning. You're going to keep the light on. But say you hear that they weren't able to make it and they pulled off the road to a hotel before they got there. Well, if you, at that point, you know they're not coming. So you turn off the light and you go to bed. But it's, if you know they're coming, you're going to keep the light on. And that's Jesus' point here. We know he's coming. We keep our lamps burning. We stay prepared. Jesus emphasizes this attitude and this spirit that we are to have, this readiness that we're to take with us every day. He makes it explicit in verse 40. No, look at what he says. He says, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Both these verses are highlighting the readiness that we must have. We know that Jesus is coming, but he's coming at a time we don't expect. We don't know when he will arrive. It will be sudden, but it should not be surprising. Friends, we know the fact of Christ's return. We just don't know the timing of Christ's return. Of course, it's those, because of the unknown timing, will mock his return and say, Christ isn't coming back. There's no accountability. But friends, we cannot let this text pass us by. He will return and he will surprise humanity. He will come at a time that we do not expect. Jesus here calls us to remain vigilant, to be watchful. He identifies himself, notice verse 40, as the son of man. This harkens back to Daniel chapter 7, which is a great eschatological passage telling and prophesying of what will take place in the end of days. And so when Jesus here says that the son of man is coming in an hour you do not expect, he is saying that this is going to be the time in which the end will be inaugurated, in which all of those end times events that were predicted by the Old Testament prophets will begin to take place. In other words, this will be the end of days when he returns. So we can stay awake by first remaining uh, ready each day. But the second uh, way that we can stay awake is by recalling the illustrations that he gives. 
Recalling the illustrations, verse 35 and verse, 39, verse 36, rather, and verse 39. Look first at verse 36. This is a positive illustration. He says, and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. This illustration is, is a house full of servants or slaves that are there waiting for the master to return. The master has gone to a wedding, weddings that often, Jewish weddings often took place in the evening. And so they are all there keeping the house ready for him to come back. And they have not sat down uh, and uh, proverbially turn on the TV to lounge and to entertain themselves. They are not finding other ways to occupy their time. They are staying poised and ready, knowing that their first task is to be ready for the master's return. The, when the master comes and knocks, he doesn't have to knock two, three, four times. He knocks once because the servants are ready. They're right there by the door. They've been waiting for him. They've been ready for him. And Jesus says, we are to be like those servants ready, expectant, knowing that he's going to come back, not be surprised and be caught off our guard. These servants were ready, they were vigilant, their lamps were burning. But this, let's look at the second illustration in verse 39. He says, but know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. The second illustration of a homeowner or a master of a house if he knew that a thief was coming that night, he would not have turned off his light and gone to bed. But because he did not expect that a thief was going to come, he, he went to sleep. But the point that Jesus makes here is that he himself will return, will come like a thief in the night. He's going to come at a time we cannot expect or we cannot predict. Friends, this is exactly why anyone who tries to place a date on the return of Jesus is uh, doing a, a foolish thing. Jesus made it very clear that we cannot predict, we cannot expect exactly when Jesus will come back. And yet history, particularly the last 100 years, is full of people that set dates for the rapture, the return of Jesus Christ. In light of all the scripture teaches on the return of Jesus, it's foolish. We don't know when he's coming back. This imagery of Jesus coming like a thief is picked up all through the New Testament. Again, as I stated earlier, the apostles picked up on what Jesus taught here and weaved it into their teaching. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2 says, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. 2 Peter 3, verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Or take Revelation chapter 3, 2 and 3. It says, wake up and strengthen what remains. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Paul, Peter, John, all using this terminology of Jesus coming like a thief. And because he's coming at a time we don't expect, we're to stay awake. We can't turn off the light and go to bed. We gotta stay awake throughout our lives recognizing that Jesus could come at any moment. The parallel passage to Luke 12, 39 in Matthew 24 says this. He says, but know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. The point is, we need to stay awake. We stay awake by remembering these illustrations that Jesus gave of the servants waiting for the master and of the thief who, who surprises the homeowner. John Calvin, the reformer, 16th century, said this. He said, the tendency of these words, therefore, is that the warning of Christ should arouse us. For though the last judgment be delayed for a long time, Yet it hangs over us every hour. And therefore, when there is ground for alarm and when danger is near, it is unreasonable that we should be sluggish. We shouldn't be lazy. We shouldn't be unconcerned with the things of heaven, with the things, eternal things, with spiritual things. We shouldn't be slowed down with the things of this world. We've got to stay sharp. We've got to stay ready. Be dressed for action because we know that Christ could come at any moment. 
So we stay awake by remaining ready each day, by recalling the illustrations that Jesus gives, and thirdly, by remembering the promised blessing. By remembering the promised blessing. Look in verses 37 and 38. He says, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. And then verse 38, if he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. He repeats it twice. There's blessing to those who are awake. Friends, we're not just staying awake because we have to. We're not staying awake because we're commanded to. We're staying awake because our Lord has promised blessing to us. He incentivizes our watchfulness. And we cannot forget that. Forget, we cannot forget that there is blessing coming to us if we stay awake. You see, the world wants us to be lulled into sleep. The world wants to entice us to get pulled off the road and to take a nap. To, to forget the urgency, to forget the sober-mindedness that we must have. To think that there is no judgment coming. There's no day of reckoning. There is no Christ returning. When that happens, we get pulled into sinful activities, unbelieving worldviews, and we fall into a drowsy sleep. Jesus wants us to stay awake, and he says that when he comes, there will be blessing for those he finds awake. Verse 38 says, if he comes in the second watch or in the third, the Jews and the Romans measure the night differently. The Romans measured it by four watches, the Jews by three watches. But by any, by either measurement, I believe that Jesus here is saying that whether he comes uh, early or comes late, that there's blessing for those he finds awake. If it's the Jewish reckoning, three watches, then what he's saying is it may be a while till he returns. He says if he comes in the second or third watch, and he comes after it's been quite a while, it's been late into the night, the temptation to sleep is there, the temptation to give up waiting has been there for a while, and yet he says there is blessing for those who persevere and who continue to wait. It's easy to wait when the night is young. It's hard when tiredness sets in and the night goes on. We want to give up. But Jesus explicitly says that those whom the master finds awake in the last hour will be blessed. And this is an encouragement, friends, for us to persevere in faith. We cannot lose hope. We cannot doubt what Jesus said. He said he will return. It is true. We can cling to that each and every day. And so we must stay awake. We must be ready. Even if it looks like it's a long time in him, in him coming, blessing is found in those who are waiting. Paul understood this, and he said in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Friends, we are to love his appearing. We are to eagerly wait for that appearing to happen. And we can know that there is this promise of a crown of righteousness, just as Paul knew it was promised to him. Well, the final means by which we can stay awake is by looking at the sweet promise that Jesus gives us in the second half of verse 37. Look at it. He says, Truly I say to you, truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. We can rejoice in Christ's future service. Do you see the sweetness of this promise? That Jesus says that those who are waiting for him to come back He's promised that he is going to walk in that door and he's going to don the gown of a servant. He's going to serve his people a banquet of food. He's going to dress himself for service, have them recline at table, which tells you it's a nice banquet. And he will then come and serve them. This is one of the sweetest promises for believers, I believe, in all of Scripture. We have here a promise that Christ will serve his saints, his faithful followers when he returns. Of course, we know that for all those who are faithful to him, who stay awake, who gets the credit for staying awake? It's him, right? So if we're awake when he returns and we receive blessing and he serves us, we don't get any of the credit for being awake. We don't get any of the credit for staying faithful and watchful. 
He deserves all the credit. We should be bowing down and praising him, and we will. But this scene, this imagery of Jesus coming to serve his people, showing the big-heartedness of Jesus for those who are his own, it's as if he is so glad for the reunion. The people that he died and he purchased with his own blood, he is now excited to be able to serve them physically in person. The picture of a banquet in the coming kingdom of God is found throughout Scripture. Isaiah 25 describes this banquet. It says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. Jesus in the next chapter, Luke 13, will say this. He says, And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And so, what Jesus promises here in verse 37 is what he did in the upper room, you'll remember, to his disciples on the night he was betrayed. John 13 records that he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist, and then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He will do this again for us. Serve us in the kingdom. Isn't this a wonderful promise? Isn't this amazing grace that we did not earn and we do not deserve? And yet Christ has promised to us. We were enemies of Christ. And yet he graciously saved us. We were destined for wrath. But Jesus stepped in to take that wrath for us. Truly Jesus is the servant. As he says in Mark 10, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Church, we have been shown so much grace. We must live our lives in constant readiness, in gratitude for that grace. We must be awake, waiting, waiting for Jesus to come back. And, and so I ask you, do you live awake? Do you live ready for Jesus to come back? Is the return of Jesus on your mind? This doesn't mean that we have to only think about that and we can't think about anything else in sort of a, a stuck-on-it sort of way. But it means that it, it's a primary factor in how we live our lives. We factor it in when we're making decisions. We factor it in in how we use our money, even as this is what Jesus just talked about, right? Using our possessions in light of eternity. Are you ready for him to come back today? Maybe tonight. Maybe tomorrow. Are you ready? He's going to come at a time you do not expect. So the first thing that Christ calls us to in this passage is to stay awake. But let's look secondly. He calls us to stay faithful. Stay awake, stay faithful. Verses 41 through 48. In the first paragraph, Jesus addressed a disposition or an attitude but now he addresses our activity or our behavior, what we should do. We have to have both. We have to have the right attitude and we need to have the right actions. We can't have one without the other. Verse 41 breaks up Jesus' teaching here with a question from Peter. Leave it to Peter to interrupt or to uh, throw something out there, right? As they say, he had a foot-shaped mouth. Uh, Peter says, Lord... Are you telling this parable for us or for all? Uh, excuse me, Lord, just time out. Before you go any further, is this for just us, like the 12 of us, or is this for like everybody? Just, I'm just curious. And notice Jesus doesn't really uh, answer him. Kind of like, Peter, if you would just listen, you'll probably get the answer. Um, but his question is helpful. Helps us to recognize this. Is this just for the disciples? Or is this for everybody? And I believe that based upon the non-answer that Jesus gives and the instruction that he then fills the next several verses, it's clear that there, Jesus is speaking to more than just the disciples. And in one sense, it's a fair question. I mean, verse 32, Jesus had addressed the disciples as the little flock. So he's going, okay, Jesus, you're talking to us, your little flock, but what you're just saying, is this really something for everybody? And what Jesus goes on to say is that, yes, this has implications for every single person. This has implications for how everybody lives because it relates to the final judgment. 
and everyone is going to have to give an account for how they lived. So therefore, this teaching applies to all. With this teaching in verses 41 through 48, Jesus wants his disciples, both those in the first century and us today in the 21st, to be faithful. And he does, he encourages faithfulness by bring, keeping two, reminding us of two major facts. The first fact is the blessings of faithfulness. The blessings of faithfulness. In one sense, he's already alluded to this, but he emphasizes it again. Verse 42, he says, And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Jesus highlights faithful stewardship by talking about a manager or a steward. The steward, as we see in verse, uh, the next verse, verse uh, 43, that they, this steward is still a slave or a servant. Doulos. But this slave has been given a position of authority over all the other slaves, over all the other servants. He's considered a manager. He's been given charge over the household, it says, or, or the gathering of, of servants or slaves. And particularly, it mentions that he's supposed to give them their food. I mean, a fairly simple reality that he was charged uh, with the authority of the master to, in the master's absence, to be able to give the food to the slaves. And this is a fundamental definition of what a steward is. A steward is one who acts on behalf of another, who manages property on behalf of somebody else. He's been given responsibility for master's property. The steward owns nothing of what they've been given to steward. They simply manage what belongs to the master. And so this steward, this manager, has a duty to perform, and he must perform it faithfully. He must hold to the rules. He must do what he's instructed to do. And this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 2. He says that it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. This is what anybody who puts anybody else in charge of their own property or their own stuff, they want them to be faithful. Just execute your duty faithfully. Do what I've asked you to do. Watch over what I've given to you. So the job of a steward is really straightforward. He must faithfully carry out the will of the master in regards to the master's possessions. And I believe that Jesus here is using this illustration of a steward over slaves or servants that's highlighting the calling of every disciple of Jesus Christ. That every one of us are called to be a steward. We are all stewards in some form or fashion. We have all been given things by God, have we not? We've been given our lives. You've been given your time, the years that you have upon this earth. You've been given certain natural abilities. You've been given certain spiritual gifts. You've been given certain financial resources. All of these things are to be used for the master's purposes. These are the master's things. These are belong to the Lord and they've been given to us to steward well. And friends, once we realize that the Christian life is one of stewardship, we should be quickly humbled to recognize that we don't own anything. That all that we have is given to us by Christ to use it well unto his glory. And that there will be a reckoning or accounting for how we have used our lives. How we have used our financial resources, how we've used our possessions, our talents, our spiritual gifts, how have we stewarded our families, our wives, our husbands, our children. We all must give an account. We must remember that everything belongs to God. Psalm 24 verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Even our lives, our very lives belong to Christ. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 through 20, it says, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So we are simply stewards of Christ's property. And so the question is, friends, are you faithfully using these according to the will of the master? Are you faithfully using all that you've been given 
according to the will of the master? Are you using your time to accomplish your will or his will? Are you using your money to accomplish your will or his will? We've looked at previous weeks and what Jesus just taught. Are you leading or serving your family to accomplish your will or his will? Are you using your spirit-given gifts in the church to accomplish your will or Christ's will? Friends, we are stewards of all that has been given to us, and there will come a day when we will be held accountable for how we have been using the Lord's resources. And the question will be on that day, have I been a faithful steward? We want to be found faithful and wise. And Jesus, to incentivize us, gives us another promise, a blessing. Look at verse 43. He says, Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Blessing is promised for those who are not only awake, but are active. Awake and active. They're doing the Lord's work. Notice that he says that it's the servant who will be doing this good stewardship when he comes. When Jesus comes, he's going to find us in some sort of condition, in some sort of state. Either we will be doing what he desires, or we will not. But if we're seeking to be faithful then Jesus will bless us. Then notice what he says in verse 44. Again, another truly statement. There was one in the prior paragraph. There's another one here. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. This verse, along with others, like in Matthew 25, seem to indicate that there are rewards for Christians that include a role of leadership or administration in the kingdom a certain sort of leadership or administration over cities and over people. Here he talks about setting them over possessions. What exactly that looks like, we're not sure. But there is meant to be a, some sort of a blessing put before us for us to recognize that God will reward us with more, that he is going to bless us in that day. But all of this, Jesus wants us to be faithful stewards in light of the fact that he could return at any moment. The story is told of a traveler who came upon a lovely but secluded estate on the shore of a tranquil lake in Switzerland. He knocked at the gate, and an aged caretaker invited him in. The caretaker seemed delighted to see another human being and eagerly escorted him through the well-tended grounds. The tourist asked, how long have you been here? 24 years, he replied. How often has your master returned? Four times, he said. When was the last? Oh, about 12 years ago. I'm almost always alone. It is very seldom that even a stranger visits me. The visitor, eager to commend, said, Yet you have the garden in such perfect order and everything is flourishing as if you were expecting your master tomorrow. No, sir, came the correction. I have fixed it as if he were coming today. Friends, this is the attitude that Jesus wants in his disciples. That we are ready for Jesus to return. That we are faithful stewards and managers of all that he's giving to, uh, given to us. So if he returns today, we can hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Well, Jesus turns from the blessings for faithfulness now to the consequences for unfaithfulness. The consequences for unfaithfulness. And he describes this by playing out a steward who goes the other direction. He's just described the wise and faithful steward. Now he's giving the, the flip side. Look at verse 45. He says, But if the servant says to himself, My master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. This steward was given a similar task to take care of the master's stuff, but he gets it in his mind that the master's delayed in coming and frankly, he doesn't believe the master's going to come back at all. And so it has a moral change in his life. As soon as he changes his belief about the coming of the master, it changes how he lives in the present day. Let that be a warning to us on our belief of the second coming of Christ. If we neglect to hold on to that truth, it will change how we live in the present day. 
This servant convinced himself that the master's delayed, probably not coming. And with the accountability stripped away, with a day of reckoning gone, this steward begins to abuse his authority. He begins to beat his fellow slaves. He is one of them. He was simply given a task to distribute food, and instead he is power hungry, and so he beats them down in order to make himself feel better and more in control and more powerful. He also seeks to live for his own pleasure. He simply drinks, eats and drinks, gets drunk. This is similar to the rich fool that we read about earlier in this chapter, simply living for the flesh, living for himself. He doesn't live for the pleasure of his master. He lives for the pleasure of his own flesh. This man believes he can live however he wants with no consequences. But verse 46 says that he's sorely mistaken. Because the master does return. And he comes on a day that he doesn't expect. An hour he doesn't expect. But now it's too late. There's a reckoning for how he has lived. Jesus says that the master delivers a severe punishment to this unfaithful manager. It says he cut him in two or cut him in pieces. Now Jesus, I believe, mixes the physical judgment with the spiritual judgment here because notice he says he cuts him in pieces and then places him with the unfaithful. You can't place someone with a group of people if you've actually literally cut them in two. And so I believe what he's saying here is that there was a physical punishment that, he, that the master rendered, but then he pulls us back to the transcendent reality that this, this, ma, this uh, steward gets placed with the unbelievers. In other words, this unfaithful steward gets sent to hell. This is the place of the unfaithful, the place of the unbelievers. The parallel passage in Matthew 24 says that it's there that there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth, a, a common designation by Jesus of what hell will be like, a place of constant pain and torment. This man thought that he could live however he wanted, but he found out the hard way it isn't that way. And Jesus is telling this story now. He's giving this parable now so that all those who heard him that day and all of us who have read it since would learn from the reality that there is a day of judgment coming. We cannot delude ourselves into thinking that Jesus is not coming back, that the judge will not return. But we need to ask ourselves, who is Jesus speaking of here? Who's going to experience this? What, what is he... Who is he talking to? What category of people does this parable apply to? Well, I think in one sense it applies to all those who live their lives in unbelief. All those who remain asleep in this world that are not awake to who Christ is and to his coming. They simply live for themselves and live for the flesh. The Bible is clear that those who sleep, they continue on in these debauched sorts of lifestyles. They live for themselves. I don't have time to look at them this morning, but 1 Thessalonians 5, Romans 13, and 1 Peter 4 all speak of immoral lifestyles that come from those who remain in their sin, those who have rejected Christ, who fail to believe that Jesus is coming back to judge. So in one sense, this speaks of all those lost in their sin and in darkness. But on the other hand, I think Jesus' words here have a special application to those who have known the truth but reject it. To those who at one point were a faithful servant but now have denied their master. Those who once claimed to be a Christian but have walked away from Christ to live according to the flesh must face the stern judgment of Christ one day. This manager was at the time of Christ, of the time of the master's departure, was a good manager, believed that he was doing the right thing. But it turned later on. Friends, the way that we live in the past is great. But Christ is going to judge us on how we're living in the present. Yes, finishing, starting well is good, but we must also finish well. We must continue to believe, continue to live holy lives, continue to turn away from sin. 
This is what Christ seeks to find in us when he returns. I believe that there is even a more pointed application here to those who serve the church as pastors and elders in leadership positions. Again, we're talking about stewards who are over other servants or stewards. There seems to be an easy parallel then to the leadership within the church. In fact, in, in Titus chapter 1, elders are called stewards of God. And so as pastors and elders are to steward Christ's flock, they must treat the flock with the same care and tenderness as Jesus, the good shepherd. Unfortunately, church history and even modern day prevent, present plenty of examples of men who instead of caring for Christ's flock, abuse and exploit the sheep of Christ. And I believe that this verse gives grounds to say that Jesus will judge them severely for their unfaithfulness and wickedness. Jesus goes on to keep talking about judgment, I believe, in verses 47 and 48. Look at it. He says, And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Now, commentators have gone different ways on what this refers to. I don't believe that th these beatings refer to uh, an action by Christ given to Christians. Even if we have failed and we have been unfaithful in some way, I don't believe that there is any expectation of beating or wrath by Christ to us. There will be loss of rewards, the Bible is clear about that, but not in terms of vindictive, uh, punitive judgment. And so what this, I believe, is referring to is that there are different levels of punishment for unbelievers. There is different severities of hell, different levels of hell, you could say, based upon their knowledge. On judgment day, there is no one who can escape judgment because of ignorance. They can say, I didn't know. Jesus says that even though they did not know, there is still punishment that is coming. How can that be? Well, Romans 1 tells us that all people know that there is a God who exists, and they suppress that truth in unrighteousness. And so no one can claim ignorance and escape judgment. But the second thing these verses teach us is that those who have been taught the truth have a greater accountability and thus a greater judgment awaiting them if they do not repent. Those who have heard the word of truth, those who have heard the gospel, have a greater accountability, and thus, if they reject that truth, I believe there's greater punishment awaiting them. He says in the final sentence of this passage that to everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. If you have been given much of the teaching of the word of God, much is required of you for you to live according to it. Friends, this is a sobering word to all who have heard the word. Those of you who have grown up in the church, who hear the word of God preached week in and week out, who've heard your parents plead with you for the scriptures to live according to the word. There is greater judgment coming if you reject that word. Know that there's an accountability, there's a day of reckoning that is coming. You cannot pay, play fast and loose with the truth of God. Take it or leave it, no consequence. No, Jesus the judge will come and will make all things clear. If you are rejecting the truth of Christ and choose to live for yourself, then you will find on that judgment day that there will be greater, harsher punishment for you. I pray that the gravity of your eternal condition and of that future judgment day sits upon your soul this morning. I pray that you would take stock of your life and how you are living, what you are trusting in. Jesus Christ will return at a time you do not expect, an hour you do not know. And so this brings us, all of us, to the end of this and we ask ourselves, what hope do we have of escaping this judgment? What hope does any of us have for saying, that's not gonna be me? Friends, our only hope of being counted as a faithful steward instead of a wicked servant is Jesus Christ.
The very one who is giving this warning is the one who went to the cross on behalf of sinners, that they would trust in him alone, that, they, that he would receive the wrath on their behalf, that all those who had placed their faith in Jesus would not have to experience the judgment and wrath of God on that final day because he took that judgment and he took that wrath upon the cross. Friends, that is our only hope. We cannot hear these words of being ready for the master's return, of being ready for the return of Christ and simply leave here and simply try to do harder. We must lean into Christ. We must depend upon him. He is our only refuge and hope. We must stand in him and him alone. The thing that gives us confidence when we put our head on the pillow at night, that if he were to come tonight and that I will, will, not, that I will escape this judgment is because I'm in him and he paid the penalty for me. Every single heart, every single person must make that statement of faith must trust in Jesus individually. No one can do that for you. No past record can do that. You must be believing today. Christ wants to find you today, trusting in him, being a faithful manager, faithful steward. Don't miss the love of God in the gospel. 1 John 4, verse 10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation the wrath bearer. He bore the wrath so that we don't have to and we don't have to be afraid of judgment day. We don't have to be afraid of Christ's return. In fact, we can be giddy with expectation and be excited for Jesus to come back and hasten his return and say, come Lord Jesus because he's our savior and he's our friend who gave himself for us. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Oh God in heaven, we pray that you would please direct each one of our hearts this morning to help us to think upon these truths. May you remind us of the urgency and the reality that Jesus Christ is coming back any day. I pray that we would not lose sight of it, that we would cling to it. And Lord, I pray for the church that you would help us to live holy lives in light of it. I pray for those, Lord, who do not yet know you, that continue to trust in their own good works, that continue to believe they want to live life for their, themselves, rejecting Christ's lordship. Father, may you cause the warning of final judgment to strike fear in their hearts and cause them to run to Christ, their only refuge. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.